As you remain uh, standing in body or spirit, we'll come before God's word, very likely as Jesus and the disciples would have, reciting uh, what he would call the great commandment in his day. They called it the Shema, based, of course, on the first word in Hebrew. So I will lead you in Hebrew, invite you to follow, and we'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, This summer, we're going to spend time in the first 11 uh, chapters of uh, Genesis, which is the beginning of our story, um, both as uh, humankind and as the people of God. So we start this morning in the very first chapter of Genesis, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said... Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Fred Craddock talks about a family, um, a a poor family that lived in a very small house uh, down the road from him in the 1930s. One particularly cold winter, the family started to run out of firewood. So the father came up with an idea. He went to the back of the house and started peeling boards off the house and burning them in the fireplace. But he noticed that though the fireplace was burning, the house seemed to be getting colder every day. And so every day he went to the back of the house and pulled off more planks from the house and put them in the fireplace. And eventually, uh, the house became extremely cold uh, in disrepair and disgusted with the weather and the condition of his house, the man left the community. Now, we might wonder why a person would do something like that, uh, completely misuse um, some, from something's original intent. And yeah, I think what we do sometimes with the Bible is very similar to that. Oftentimes, we take the Bible and, uh, and make it a place for uh, debate or argument and use it in such a way that it strips it of the very purpose for which it was originally made. So for example, when we come to the first chapter of uh, Genesis, we often will turn that into uh, a debate about science or history, when in actuality, the boards on the Bible were never meant to be thrown into the fire of science or history for our discussion. They answer questions uh, of a different sort. And so to try to go to the Bible and find specific answers for our 21st century questions, uh, sometimes uh, not only uh, is not helpful, but it leads to a greater frustration. So we, like the farmer down the road, just finally pack it up and move on. One scholar puts it this way. Sometimes we come to the Bible with different expectations. It would be like taking a Fabergé egg and trying to break it open and see if there was a yolk inside. We would miss the real brilliance and beauty of what is there. So what I'd like to talk with you about this morning is probably the question 
Bible wants to answer for us in Genesis 1. You may answer other questions, but let's at least look at these questions that I believe the Bible wants us to answer. And the first thing is the Bible really, I think, is not interested in giving us timetables in terms of how many hours or years things took place. The um, Bible's not really interested in giving us a detailed rundown of how everything uh, happened because notice that creation, all the way to the creation of the first people takes place in 26 verses. The heavens, the earth, everything in between in just 26 verses. So it's obvious the Bible doesn't plan to expound on those kinds of details as much as we might like them. But I believe the first question the Bible wants to answer about creation is just simply this, who did it? Who created? And the obvious answer is God created. God made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And the implication is, if God made it, then God owns it. Psalm 134 puts it this this way. The earth and everything that belongs, uh, or everything in the earth belongs to God. So the first question that the Bible really wants you to see in Genesis 1 is, who's in charge here? And the real answer is God. One of the things the rabbis used to talk about is they said you could actually divide the, the, the universe into two, straight down the middle, into two parts. On one side would be everything that's created, everything that was made. That would be people, and that would be fish and animals, and that would be your art project, and that would be your TV. I mean, all this, everything that was created. And on the other side of the line, everything that was not created. And the way the rabbis interpreted, there's only one in all the universe who was not created, and that is the creator. And so they said that the key is never treat anything on this side of the line, the created side, as if it belonged on the uncreated side. Never treat anything else in life with the respect and love that is due to God alone. God owns it. It belongs to God. One of the ways they did that in the ancient world is whoever gave something a name uh, was thought to be their owner or their master. So for example, when later Adam will get to name the different animals, that means Adam is supposed to uh, be in uh, a relationship uh, uh, with these animals and hiring the animals. And when God names the, the day, day, and the night, night, uh, God is proving that all of this It belongs to God. So the very first question the Bible wants to answer is uh, not so much all the detail of how it happened, but just to let you know, never forget who did it, who started this. God did it. And so therefore, all of us and everything we have all belongs to God. Now, the next question I think the the Bible uh, would probably uh, want to uh, talk about might be, well, how did it happen? And the problem here is oftentimes we want to talk about how it happened and compare it to some 19th century theory. Charles Darwin. Fine, you can do that. But just understand the Bible never intended for that comparison. The Bible's comparison about how the world was made is not the something uh, that would come along as a theory uh, many, many, many years later, but rather was in contrast with the way most of the ancient world talked about creation, especially those Babylonians who pretty much ruled most of the known world uh, during the Old Testament time, especially when Genesis would have been written down. And this is how they said creation happened. Creation happened when there was a god, a mother god, and her name was Tiamat, 
and her son, who's rather disobedient, and his name is Marduk. And they get into a splat. And so Marduk wins the splat, kills his mother, cuts her into three pieces, and forms then the heavens, the earth, and the waters. And most ancient Near East creation stories are about a violent um, battle between gods, and as a result of the battle, an earth comes forth, or a violent subjection of the earth by a god. And so we get a different story. Here in Genesis, God creates not by killing anything, not by trying to dominate or oppress anything or anyone. God creates just by speaking. God says, let there be, and there was. And God called it good. It was a permission-giving freeing act of creation, not a dominating, violent act of creation. So as we deal with others or creation in ways that are violent and oppressive and dominating, we're actually out of line with how God intended all this stuff to work. God just said it and happened. One uh, great rabbi, Abraham Heschel, said this way, that our words create work. In that way, we're somewhat in the image of God and that the words that we use actually have a power. I've seen that power in actuality. I will stand here and a groom will stand there and a bride will stand there and with just two words, I do. An entire new world is created. Words have power. Sit behind a desk. And a person on the opposite side of the desk leans over and looks at you and says, you're hired. A new world is created. Bring the baby to the baptismal font and say, I will. And a new world is created. Words have power and God uses power of influence and permission, and creativity, and not power of oppression. And so one of the things the Bible wants to say is, well, God creates, but not the same way that Marduk created uh, the Babylonians. And then you might say, a question the Bible thinks interesting to answer, maybe, is, well, what did God, what did we know God created, we know that God created by speaking, but what did God use to create? And there are about two theories on this that you could get from Genesis. One is the classical theory. That's God created out of nothing. There was nothing there, and so God made everything there was. And, and that has some strength to it because some people get worried if there are things hanging around that are as old as God, then somehow that might uh, threaten God's sovereignty. I don't think God's too worried about it. We'll get to that in a minute. But one of the theories is God created out of nothing. Paul says to the Romans, God brought things into existence that had not yet existed. God calls things into existence, Romans 4. Another time, an angel says to Mary, who's not really sure how virgin can have a baby, and says, nothing is impossible for God. And that's part of the theory of God can create out of nothing. But the other thing the text says, though, this morning that I think jumps out at me is in the story today, God creates out of something. God creates out of the mess that is there. God creates out of chaos. There is a darkness, a formlessness. 
just water. And water is a symbol in the Bible for chaos. You probably um, may have noticed this in the Bible. Israel doesn't have a navy. There aren't very many fishermen. Jesus calls about every fisherman available to be a disciple because they were afraid of the water and the sea. One of the great things about Revelation is it promises us that the sea will be no more. Well, you and I might get frustrated. Does that mean we can't go to the beach? But the way they read it is there's no more chaos. Um, When I was in Israel, I think I've mentioned to you, I've been four times and only once have I ever seen a jet ski on the Sea of Galilee. They just don't mess with the water. The water's a place of chaos. And so when God has water and God creates, God is taking create. Uh, chaos and ordering it. Well, I like that version because that speaks to my life. I mean, I get you, if you've been to my office, you understand chaos. Stuff on my desk and stacked up and books sideways and vertical and horizontal and uh, at different angles. And, uh, and, but those chaos, the mess of our life are God's Legos. So what Genesis 1 says, God takes the stuff that's there and God puts it together in a way that makes something amazing and more beautiful. Remember the famous story of Michelangelo when they asked him about his wonderful uh, marble statue of David and they asked him how he did it. And he said, well, I just chipped away everything in the rock that wasn't David. He took something and saw the beauty in it and cleared away And I think Genesis 1 wants to say that about creation, that God looks down, sees a mess, and orders the mess in a way that brings something even more beautiful and powerful. I love what Jesus says in the book of Revelation. He says, behold, I am making all things new. But he doesn't say I'm making all new things. Just as at the beginning of the Bible, so it is at the end of the Bible, that God says, I will take whatever is there, and I will make something more wonderful and beautiful of it. I think about my life, and I think about the broken pieces of it. And I think about dreams or opportunities or mistakes and relationships, and I think of them lying around in different places, and I see a God, according to Genesis 1, that can take all of that and make it something even more amazing. I think that's, for me, the beauty of the creation story. There's lots of beauty in it. So I'm not here to argue about it, but just to invite you to to look at some of the beauty. I'm reminded of Alexander Fleming. The name probably rings a bell to some of you. Works at St. Mary's Hospital, 1920s and 30s uh, in, in the UK. And has a cramped office there at the hospital, does Dr. Fleming. Messy and cramped. And then he goes on vacation to Scotland and he leaves the window open. Well, apparently because he forgot and left the window open on vacation, uh, a wind came through and blew something. Apparently blew the penicillium in one dish into the staphylococci. In another dish, Fleming comes back after two weeks. And of course, you know the story. Basically, in my layman's terms, you can tell I'm only the son of a physician and not a scientist at all. But basically, what he's come back is discovered, of course, penicillin, because from one Petri dish, the penicillium into the dish with the staph, and he's seen the amazing results. 
Fleming always marveled at the accidental, chaotic nature of the discovery. And I wonder if our eyes were more open to creation and to our own lives, if we might marvel with all of the amazing things God does with chaos in our own world and our life as well. We look and we see chaos. God says, give me a little while. And God looks down and calls it good.